Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. I'm Hado. I too am an autodidact. <laughs> you am an autodidact. I That's am what you said last time. <laughs> it's MN, not NM. <laughs> we are the autodidact. <laughs> we are indeed. Anonymous. <laughs> um, so today we're talking about chapter six in Harari's book, Sapiens, and it's entitled Building Pyramids. So that, when I saw that, I thought it was going to be about building buildings and civilizations and all of that sort of stuff, which was a consequence of the agricultural revolution. Typ- typical me, I thought it was about building pyramids. Yeah, yeah, well, I thought they'd get a mention, and it does later on in the chapter, actually, but it's, it's, it's a different sort of history of how civilization began. It's talking about what, what the psychological and sociological factors behind civilization, you know, what allowed, enabled us to actually be allowed uh, or enabled to cooperate in such large groups. Yeah. So it's almost like a psychohistory chapter. Um, so I will, I'll start with a few facts and then we'll talk more about the, uh, the psycho part of it. Um, so there are cultural revolution has taken place. Um, there's some debate about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it was obviously good for progress, but probably a bad thing for the health and happiness of the individual. I think we can agree on that. Um, it led to a huge population explosion. So in 10,000 BCE, there were around 5 to 8 million people on the planet, uh, foragers. And by the first century CE, only 1 or 2 million of these remained, but there were 250 million agriculturists, including nomadic shepherds. Yep. Um, In the process of this happening, a huge psychological change took place within humans. Uh, People started becoming attached to their possessions. So I have a house. You know, you're only allowed to come in if I say so. Um, I'm separated from the neighbours. We probably became a more self-centred creature during this time. Yeah, there's nothing like having things to trigger off our sense of self. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also spent, uh, spent a lot of our, or all of our time, most of our time, changing our environment. So we'd spend our time cutting down forests, digging canals, clearing fields, building houses, ploughing furrows and planting trees in rows. And when you've put that sort of effort into things, you form an attachment to it. Yes. Um, you want to protect it. But you also start to identify with it. These are now your memories of who you are, what you are, who I belong to. Yeah. So um, the resultant artificial habitat that we created was meant only for us and uh, was fenced off often by walls and hedges and the like. Um, wayward plants, i.e. weeds, animals, i.e. predators, and humans, i.e. them, yep. were driven out. Um, so there's 60 million square miles of land area on earth. Um, and as late as 1400 human habitats made up just 2% of this area, 4.25 million square Um, miles. Was that correct? I thought what he was actually saying was two thirds of the earth's surface is ocean. One third is land. That's the land mass that I've that I've. Yeah, that's you. right. Yeah, the land mass is correct, but I thought the two percent actually referred to the surface of the Earth. But e- either way, 
everything. Well, it was 4.25 million square miles, so do the maths. Um, that's one fifteenth of the land surface, which is not 2%, is it? So you're right. I usually am. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, the whole of history has really played out over that 2%. One fifteenth is closer to 7, 7%. Yeah, it's 7% of the land surface. Good, I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> um, we do do some fact-checking occasionally, right? <laughs> now, during this time, the concept of the future became vastly more important. So foragers lived in the present moment because they lived hand-to-mouth and couldn't really plan for the future, even if they wanted to. Um, so as a result, they probably didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Correct. Apart from paying attention to we need to be moving south now because the winter's coming in or something, it wasn't a big deal for them. Yeah, it's funny, you know, how much, I suppose they did have seasonal awareness. Harari doesn't mention that. He, he talks about how agriculturists obviously were very seasonally aware. Don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even, even then, it was, it was a one thing follows another kind of awareness of time. So, yeah. you know, something happens and we move on. Yeah. It wasn't a, there wasn't the arrow of direction no. to the same extent. And it wouldn't have even been in their mind a lot of the time. No. I mean, they're thinking about what's happening today yeah. and living in the present moment. They were mindful, Hutto. Yes. And, very, and probably that's one of the reasons they were probably happier. Very good point. They're probably a lot more mindfulness. Yeah. So there were a few exceptions. So they did think about the future to some degree. So cave paintings probably were designed to last, you know, yeah. for a long time. Um, social affiliations and political alliances were made. And so they were, you know, they were about the future. And that, that site we looked at last week, which was where they came together and built a, a kind of Stonehenge, if you like. Yeah. That, that mind boggles me. It's, it's mind boggling a lot of people. Well, that was, that was using a shed and... Yeah, that was probably religion that did that, it, which is the sort of stuff that we, you know, which we're going to talk about more in the context of agriculture. Correct, but it was also a major building project, and yeah. projects have timelines. Yeah, and they didn't have Microsoft Project to run, you know, so it's It's astonishing. <laughs> Not that I actually know how to use Microsoft Project, <laughs> and I ran projects for many years. <laughs> Don't tell my old boss that. Um, the other things they did were um, repay favours and take revenge. That was a fairly big one. Yeah. So that's future-oriented. Um, so they saved themselves a lot of long-term planning. Yeah. Uh, and they also probably saved themselves a lot of anxiety. And they got by without Microsoft Project. <laughs> they did. They didn't have the anxiety of learning that. Def- definitely a happier world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Microsoft. <laughs> um, so the agricultural revolution made the future extremely important. Mm. Um, so the agri- agriculture is based on a seasonal cycle comprising long months of cultivation and short periods of harvesting. So yeah. most of your time is spent thinking about the future. Yeah, but in, in a cyclical form, it's not about thinking about the going forward thing, the arrow of direction we see coming out of Israel, Israelite history, for True. example. It's about the cycle of life, much more in Eastern philosophy. That's right. But the main point being that we've taken our mind out of the present moment yes. and put it into the future, yes. whether that's cyclical or linear, yes. uh, you know, or, the, the main thing has still happened. All about 
yep. future yield and then also storing things against future want. The other thing about the agricultural lifestyle was that there is a lot of uncertainty about yep. it. So you're at the mercy of droughts, floods, pestilence. Um, farmers were obliged to produce more than they consumed as opposed to the, the foragers that weren't. Yeah. Um, you only need to talk to a farmer to, today to understand hey, what they're like. Oh, they're always looking at their weather forecasts. And they're riddled with anxiety, you know. They're, they're yeah. often really worried. Yeah, <laughs> and with good reason, unfortunately. Well, exactly, yeah. We're not arguing that either of these is right no. or wrong, but I think one makes you happier than the other. That's right, That's all. and this is after we got freezers to store the peas in. <laughs> yeah, you still got to grow them though, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, so peasants, i.e. farmers, stressed and worried about increasing their economic security for the future. But it never really happened because once surpluses were created, it didn't take long for rulers and elites to come along and basically take them away. Absolutely. The tax man cometh. Something else which you didn't really yeah. have in a hunter-gatherer community. That's right. So now, yeah, good, yeah, good point. <laughs> So now we're in a situation where we're worrying full-time about the future and not even getting any benefits from it. <laughs> well, so, yeah, except for the elites. They're yeah. getting huge benefits. Yeah. Um, these forfeited food surpluses were the fuel for politics, wars, art and philosophy, which came along later, of course. Yeah. Uh, palaces, forts, monuments and temples. Yeah. So it's as simple as that. Food surpluses essentially fueled civilization. Yes. Or, or you know... You could argue stolen food surpluses. Well, that too, yes. Yeah. So these surpluses allowed more and more people to cram together into large villages, towns, and eventually cities. Um, but more people leads to more disputes, Hutter. You know, you're now no longer living with your friends and relatives. You're living with the grumpy next-door neighbour who's, uh, you know, not, not fixing his side of the fence. Not only that... But in the past, you had your 150 people in your tribe, you had to get along together, and, but you knew them all. Yeah. Now you've got 10,000 people, you don't know most of them, yeah. so your dispute isn't just with your neighbour, yeah. it's with that guy over there who ripped you off at the marketplace, and you don't <laughs> even know him. <laughs> so, yes, so some of these disputes are, look, how do we divide the land, how do we distribute the water, how do we settle disputes that we spoke about? Yeah. And how do we act in times of emergency such as drought and war? Uh, an interesting point. It's not shortages that causes the wars and revolutions. It's arguing over who should get the surplus. <laughs> it's a very interesting point. And, you know, this brings in the whole concept of justice systems and legal systems and, you know, all, all this system, system stuff. Yeah. And justice systems are being yet another way of ripping it off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, an example of that is Rome, which collapsed in a civil strife at a period of enormous affluence. Yeah. So it wasn't shortage that uh, led to civil strife. It was, it was uh, wealth, in a way. Yeah. Um, now, as humans, we actually don't have a DNA-related instinct for mass cooperation. Um, foragers got away with it because they were able to cooperate, cooperate due to their shared myths. Yeah. And also gossip and also knowing each other intimately. Um, but their co cooperation was fairly loose and limited. You're saying basically that our empathy is really for a limited number of people. 
Oh, well, I wasn't saying that explicitly, no, but, okay. uh, but I mean, don't put words into my yeah, mouth, Hutter. Sorry, <laughs> but I, I, I think we have a genetically created empathetic um, cooperative drive, but it's limited. You know, it's what Stalin said about, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Yeah. Once you go up beyond, you know, three or four hundred people, you don't know these people anymore, mm. and you don't have an instinctive... DNA drive to cooperate with 10,000 people. So the myths that we ha- had developed were no longer sufficient to enable us to live in such large numbers. Yeah. And to give you an example of how the numbers sort of grew exponentially, by 7,000 BCE, there were one or two or a handful of towns of five to 10,000 people, including Jericho. Um, by 4,000 BCE, we had cities containing tens of thousands of people. Mm. In 3100 BCE, the Nile Valley in Egypt was united for the first time and its pharaohs ruled over hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. The first empire came along in 2250 BCE and it had over a million subjects and a standing army of 5,500 soldiers. By 500 BCE, Assyrian, Persian and Babylonian empires had uh, come and in some cases gone, um, they ruled over many millions of subjects and had tens of thousands of soldiers. Mm-hmm. In 221 BCE, China united under the Qin Dynasty, which had 40 million subjects, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and a complex bureaucracy of more than 100,000 officials. Yeah. Um, shortly afterwards, the Mediterranean Basin was united under Rome, which had up to 100 million subjects at its peak a standing army of 250,000 to 500,000 soldiers, uh, a road network that was in use for 1,500 years, and theatres and amphitheatres that hold spectacles to this day. It is mind-boggling. I mean, that's... that's uh, for a single paragraph encapsulation of, if you like, the progress of history, but certainly the increasing complexity mm. and numerical, it's... That is mind-boggling. You know, we, we, we think about the enormous changes that happen in society in the modern day, yeah. but it's not like there weren't enormous changes taking place in the ancient world. No. Either, no. you know, arguably, you know, bigger changes. I mean, changing, well, fr- changing from a forager mindset to an agriculturist mindset is huge. I mean, creating a complex bureaucracy of more than 100,000 officials... <laughs> Where you've never had anything to build that on, nothing to present. I mean, during that same period, we're talking about developing written languages and stuff like that, precisely to meet these problems. Yeah, yeah. So these huge networks weren't based on altruistic cooperation anymore. They were built on coercion. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've got to have a carrot and a stick, but there's increasing amounts of stick. Besides, those damn farmers don't want to give away their surpluses. No. They need coercion. That's right, those damn farmers. <laughs> Hello to our far- the farmers in the audience. <laughs> You're just offending everyone today, hello. <laughs> oh, I'm back to that, am I? Yeah. So, the real answer, I suppose, is, is what were these huge networks based on? And they were based on imagined orders, mm. uh, which is, once again, beliefs in shared myths, mm. but they were different shared myths. Yeah. Um, now, Harari gives two examples of how shared myths manifested in, in civilizations. 
Uh, a couple of nice bookends because the numbers uh, are, you know, uh, work out really well. Yeah. So that we're, we're going to talk about the Babylonian Empire in 1776 BCE. Yep. And we're going to talk about the American Declaration of Independence in 1776 CE mm-hmm. and have a look at the similarities and differences between them both. So... In 1776 BCE, Babylon was the world's biggest city and the empire was the largest world empire with more than one million subjects mm-hmm. that ruled most of Mesopotamia, which is Iraq and, you know, a few other places, Syria. Um, I think, I don't know if it was Western Iran, but it was that area. Yeah. So a famous um, discovery from this time is um, Hammurabi's law code. Yeah. And uh, now we're starting to talk about, okay, this is how we started to manage these big numbers. So uh, Harari gives um, some examples of of this law code. Now, there were about 300 judgments on this law code in total. Um, And they were basically of the form, if this happens, such and such happens, then this is is the the judgment. So he built a law code based on codifying judgmental decisions which have been made. So yes. Um, I don't know if it's ever been done before, but this is certainly the most famous example of it. Yeah. Now, these laws were passed down to Hammurabi by the leading deities at the time. That's, that's, that's how we... Yes. That's how he got... Um, yes. You know, that, that's how he got... What's the word? Um, <laughs> well, authority. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, authority, yeah. Now... I don't know about you, but I don't believe that. <laughs> uh, that sounds... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm smelling bullshit here, Hutto. Well, I'll join you in bullshit. Uh, look, did man create God or God create man? Well, certainly man has always placed his own image on God. Mm. Um, and we've also always had a tendency to go for the God of the gaps. But yes, claiming the authority of the heavens has always been... One of the great standards. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, to give you some examples now, what these what these examples probably show is how unequal their society was. Okay, so there were three classes: superior men and women, yeah. commoners and slaves. Yeah. Okay. If a superior man should blind the eye of another superior man, then his own eye shall be blinded, and, and that, that applied to broken bones as well. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, sort of stuff. Um, If a superior man should blind the eye or break the bone of a commoner, he'll pay 60 shekels of silver, which is probably a better result than than having your eye put out. Um, If a superior man should blind the eye or break the bone of the slave of another superior man, he shall deliver half of the slave's value in silver. Yeah. Not to the slave, no, 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 <laughs> to no. the superior man that owns him. Uh, that's right. He's the one who's been offended. The slave <laughs> simply probably. Um, if a superior man strikes a superior woman and causes her to miscarry, then he shall pay 10 shekels of silver. Right. So that implies that women were less equal than men oh, in this society. But it's also... He doesn't pay the 10 shekels of silver to her. He pays it to her husband, I suspect. Yeah. Because yeah. it is his child that he has. Which implies that you could beat your own wife with impunity. Well, and also if you're rich enough, just go and do it. 
<laughs> I'm sure plenty of people did it as well. Yeah. Um, if the woman happens to die, then his daughter will be killed. So that's starting to get a bit serious. Yeah, for the daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and also for him as well. But well, yeah, you're right. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, you're right. I got lots of daughters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all of these people weren't necessarily evil as well. But yeah, I mean, I take your point. Um, now, if a superior man strikes a common woman, causing her to miscarry a child, who he shall pay five shekels of silver, which is about half of what he had to pay in the Never. first instance. And if that woman dies, his, his daughter doesn't get killed. He, he has to pay 30 shekels of silver. Right. If he strikes a slave woman of a superior man, he has to pay two shekels of silver. Right. <laughs> um, and if the slave woman dies, he has to pay 20 shekels of silver. So that's about a third of the cost of um, blinding the eye of a common, common man. Yeah. And, you know, fines, it's a bit like a speeding bump, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. you must not go around killing too many of them or it'll seriously dent the exchequer here. Yeah. So Babylonian social order was allegedly rooted in universal and eternal principles of justice dictated Absol- by the gods. Absolutely. And, I mean, any god could tell you that this is, is the way. That's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, hierarchy is obviously the order of the day. Yes. Uh, people were divided into two genders and three classes. Yep. Um, children were the property of their parents. If a superior man kills the son of another superior man, his own son is executed. Yep. Yep. You wouldn't want to have a murderous fiend as your old man, would you? Well, no. I mean, this is the problem now. Oh, I just struck his daughter, and now one of mine's got to go. Now, which is it going to be? Yeah. Uh, it certainly brings about a sort of discipline in the household. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, we're laughing about this because it's ridiculous in our time, but this was accepted by people at the time and for many future generations as being the truth. It still happens in some places in the world today. Yeah. So let's, let's compare that with the American Declaration of Independence, which happened in 1776. So on the 4th of July of that year, the colonies declared that they were no longer subjects of the British Crown. Ah, oh, went to the Age of Enlightenment, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, their Declaration of Independence, similar to Hammurabi's law code, was declared yep. universal. Yep. And eternal principles of justice that were inspired by God. Absolutely. Does this sound familiar to you? Uh, it's the same mindset, yeah. It's so, just how you do it. Yeah. So the, 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 more, um, the main concepts of it were that all men were created equal, um, they have certain unalienable rights, mm-hmm. in, these rights include life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, mm-hmm. and once again, this was accepted by everybody and by future generations as truth, even even today. These truths we hold to be self-evident, yeah. God-given, self-evident, who can dispute them? Correct. So which one's correct? Uh, are all people equal, according to the Americans, or is there a natural hierarchy, according to the Babylonians? And even for the Americans... People don't include slaves. They're not really people. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But who is correct? I mean, that, getting back to the question. Well, that's exactly right. And this is where I have a problem with the whole idea of ontology and God-given decrees about such things. I'm going to have to uh, get you to talk a bit about ontology at some point because you, you mentioned it a lot and I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Well, it, it ties right <coughs> in with this. I mean, the, yeah. 
various religious orders, and particularly Christians, tend to say that there is a God-given order in ontology. Everything is designed for a particular purpose and function. Yep. And if you're not behaving in accordance with that, then whatever. Um, yep. Tends to be used in arguments about gender and things like that. Too. Yeah. So the answer is they're both wrong. But they're self-evident. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, <coughs> the only place where such universal principles exist is in the fertile imagination of humans. Uh-huh. And the myths they invent and tell each other, they have no objective uh, validity, like gravity has objective validity. Yeah. Um, it's very easy for you and me to laugh and reject the truth of Hammurabi's hierarchical model because we, we haven't been raised with that myth. Correct. Um, but the American one yeah. is not so easy for you and I to reject. I mean, I, I, I believe it. I believe that humans were created equal. I mean, this, this I've is... I've bought into the myth, Hutter. This, this is saying that, you know, the United States of America does not exist outside of our imagination. Yeah. Um, and it's a major statement. Yeah, but it's not making a statement about... We're not talking about the nation of the United States. We're talking about the myth from the Declaration of Independence right but, now. But, that, but this is exactly where the whole myth so, of the United States... Yeah, created States by a myth. Yeah, exactly. I agree, and we're going yeah. to talk about that yeah, a bit more we as we are, go yeah. on. Um, so the American Declaration of Independence states were all equal. Now, in what sense are we equal? Are we equal biologically? Obviously not. No. Were we created even? I mean, created. We're all created equal. Well, we were created. We, we evolved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, did my parents create me? I certainly didn't create myself. No. Um, um, so evolution is actually based on differences, not yes. on equality. Yes. Um, so if you, we're actually going to go through and reword the American Declaration of Independence according to objective truth. Yeah. So we need to change the words created equal to be evolved differently. Yeah. Okay. Um, the words endowed by the creator should be born, as you just, as you just yeah. kind of um, yeah. uh, pointed out, saying you were born by your parents. Um, now, rights do not exist in biological terms. No. Unalien- unalienable rights should be mutable characteristics. Yeah, well, it's a stretch, but I have to agree, I haven't got any unalienable rights. Mm. Liberty is also not a biological term. It exists only in people's imaginations. Yeah. Um, happiness is a hard one to put your finger on. It's never been clearly defined or measured, or not saying it never has, but it's, it's, it hasn't been pinned down. The psychologists struggle with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so life in the pursuit of happiness should be life in the pursuit of pleasure. Much easier to measure pleasure. Correct. So now we've got a new uh, Declaration of Independence in biological terms, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men evolve differently. They are born with certain mutable characteristics, mutable characteristics, and that among these are life and the pursuit of pleasure. Now, you can't argue with that. That's objectively true. Yeah. Not quite as as appealing. No, but that that is... Self-evident. Well, even if it's not self-evident, it is objectively um, observable. Yeah. So if we can all agree that stability is normal, and this this ties in with what you mentioned before about 
one idea creating another idea. So if we can all agree that stability is normal, then we can have, actually have a more stable and prosperous society. We, we believe in these imagined realities not because they're true, but because they are, they, they're beneficial. Yeah, because what you're saying there is that when Hammurabi built his code and when they came up with the American Declaration Constitution, etc., what they were trying to do was create the foundation for a stable society. Yes. And that's the justification for these self-evident truths. Yes. And uh, they are the only way that a large number of humans can cooperate effectively. So gossip and, and small groups is no longer um, adequate. We need bigger. We need bigger myths. We need bigger myths. Yeah. Um, Share the bigger myths. <clears throat> so does it then follow that we're all just running around lying to themselves? So lying to ourselves. We don't, like, I don't particularly want to hear that human rights are a myth, right? Right. Um, because I'm a true believer. And because they benefit you. Yeah, and it upsets me to think otherwise. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, but the truth is that humans don't have natural rights. So, for example, chimp- chimpanzees don't nope. really have natural rights. Um, but let's not tell anyone, let's not tell any of our listeners because... It's still useful to act as if we do and believe that we do. Yeah, it's one of the things that's now coming up, of course, you know, should we give rights to artificial intelligence and penguins and all sorts of things? Well, it depends. Exactly. I mean, they're all myths anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, So gravity has an objective reality, but an imagined order doesn't. It can collapse, and it has done so many times throughout history and will continue to do so. Yes. Um, It must be safeguarded continuously to survive. Ah, a critical point. How do you safeguard a myth? Well, some of the ways you do it is through violence and coercion. Yeah. And a lot of the time, that's more threatened than actual. So I live in a, I live in a you know, liberal Western democracy where violence doesn't get perpetrated on me really ever. Yeah. But there's, the threat is there. Yeah. If I do such and such, if I go and rob a bank, you know, I'll probably get shot. Yeah. So, the, you know, it's a threat of violence and yeah. coercion. I'm certainly coerced. I have to follow the speed limit and I have to do this, that and the other. Yeah. Um, and there, we have things like armies, police forces, courts and prisons, uh, which uh, help us to do that. Not to mention social coercion from Ku Klux Klan or whatever it may be. Yeah. To, yeah. Where, where does social coercion first evolve? Well, it happens with our parents, and then we go to school. Yeah. You, you pretty soon learn to conform at school, don't well, you? The teacher, well, your parents are big authority figures, and your teacher's a huge authority yeah. figure. I mean, we're, we're pretty compliant. I mean, I, I was pretty compliant by the time I was, whatever, age, six, yeah. seven, eight. And your peer group at school, you pretty soon learn if you're the oddball, you're going to get picked on. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, as you mentioned before, these imagined orders can't just be sustained by violence and mm. coercion alone. It actually requires true believers, such as you and I. I presume you believe that, that all humans were created equal. Or, oh, yeah, well, you believe in human rights. Stretching things a bit. <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, um, the whole concept of law order the United States and the police and justice system, you know, how can you argue against them there? Well, they're real. Yeah. As far as, as, you know, I can tell. Um, So priests, soldiers, jailers and judges and police believe in what they're doing. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not lying. Yeah. 
Um, I'm not lying when I tell you the United States exists. Yeah. 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 So we're, we're true believers. So, so how did this come about? Right. So how did we how did we all start to truly believe in myths? Mm. And according to Harari, there are two main ways. The first one is you never admit that the order is imagined. And the second one is you educate, i.e., brainwash the people thoroughly. Yep. Um, and this just manifests in just about everything. That we do. So it comes through in fairy tales, dramas, paintings, songs, etiquette, yep. political propaganda, architecture, recipes, fashions, yep. just to name a few. Yep. Right? An example that Harari gives, gives is that rich kids wear jeans, right? Yeah. Now, they would, wouldn't have been caught, get, caught dead in jeans a couple hundred years ago because no. that's what the working class wore. Yeah. Okay. But because people believe in equality now, it's not cool. I mean, well, it's, 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 it looks better if you're going to wear the same sort of clothes as the yeah. working class. Um, didn't happen in the Middle Ages because people didn't believe in equality. No, they believed in class divisions. So the idea was to um, make yourself look different that's than right. the working class or the peasants. Um, even today, when I go to a fancy hotel or whatever, they'll call me Sir. Yes. You know, that, that was reserved just for the, uh, for the aristocracy yeah, exactly. back in the day. Um, so the study of these types of things is called the humanities or social sciences, which is really interesting because sometimes people will say, oh, the humanities and social sciences, they're kind of like the weaker, the weaker, the weaker sciences, if you like. But given this, given that they basically define our entire lives, yes. you, know, you can argue that they're, in a sense... It's more important than yeah, some of the sciences, or just as important. It, certainly to a human being living within society, as we all have to do, yeah. they are every bit as important, in fact, much more so for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's how you get people to, to buy in, but how do you prevent them from waking up? Ah. I woke. Yes, I must not do that. <laughs> um, so there's three main ways to do that. So um, this imagined order that we're talking about is actually embedded in our material world. So now it's coming over to the real sciences, if you like, real objective things. Yeah. Um, for example, in a modern house, individualism is embedded into the architecture of that house. So, for example, even little kids have their own bedroom with a door that they can often lock or at least close yeah. And that bedroom has posters on the walls of pop stars and sports stars and stuff. I mean, they've essentially decorated it as they see fit. Yeah. Okay. Um, that didn't happen in medieval societies, right? Um, they didn't believe in individualism. So, for example, even if you had the money to do it, all the kids slept out in the hall, right? They didn't have their own bedrooms and their own lives, if you like. We, we've been brought up in the cult of individualism for so long. Even I, who have a suspicious mind... Hadn't realised quite how far it had gone. Yeah. I thought these examples Harari came up with were brilliant. They, they clarified some things for me. I mean, we all know the United States may be a shared myth, but, you know, that border wall is there because of that shared myth, yeah. and the border wall is objectively real. Um, but I hadn't thought as much of, you know, the very architecture yeah. of our lives. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I hadn't as either. Um, the second way um, that we keep people believing it is um, 
the imagined order shapes our desires. So the desires, for example, the desire of modern Westerners are shaped by romantic, nationalist, capitalistic, consumerist and humanist myths. Okay? Yeah. So, for example, it's a dream of a lot of Westerners now to take a holiday abroad. Yeah. Um, chimpanzees don't do that. They don't no. go off somewhere for a holiday. Egyptian pharaohs didn't go to Babylon for their no, summer holidays no. or to Phoenicia to sit by the beach. You build a pyramid. Right. Correct. So if, if you're in trouble with your wife and you wanted to make her happy, you didn't take her off to Babylon for a holiday, you'd buy her a nice or you'd build her a nice tomb that she could be buried in. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's hope we don't go back to that. Uh, thanks for things, pyramids. Yeah. So this desire that we have to go on holidays now is shaped by romantic, the myth of romantic consumerism. Now, yeah. romanticism is a philosophy from the 19th century, yeah. and consumerism is basically a product of the 20th century. Yeah, and they all built around the individualism idea too. Yeah. It tells us to broaden our horizons, fulfil our human potential, and, and become yeah. happier. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think a good example too is just in my lifetime is the changing modern day attitudes to homophobia and racism. Mm -hmm. So I was a, a little kid in the seventies, and homophobia and racism was rife. Yeah, you know, it was just it was just normal. Yeah, and you know, you know, it's not like you went around you know victimising the, these people, but it was so taboo. Particularly, homoph particularly you know, being being yeah. gay was so taboo that someone would be a laughing stock if they were gay. Yeah. That's changed now. My mindset about that stuff has changed just in my lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I was born in a British colony, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Empire. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I find that quite amazing. And that explains a lot about you, I think. Oh, thank you, yeah. <laughs> so the imagined order, it's not objective like gravity. And it's not subjective like if I had an imaginary friend, that would be completely subjective. You, yes. wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to see them. But it's intersubjective, which is something that lies, exists in the communication networks between people. Yes. Right? Um, so you can't change it. I mean, you and I have now woken up because we've read this book and we're podcasting about it. Yeah. But that doesn't, that's, that doesn't matter. Like we're, st we're still going to continue to live as if these myths are real. Absolutely. Because you can't change, because it's not subjective, you can't change by waking up yourself. You need to wake everybody up. Yes. Which is, yeah. you know, a, a big, and, big challenge. Yeah, and there are big forces to stop you doing that. I mean, North Korea is a classic example, so is the Soviet Union. You know, the very idea that you can change these things is something that must be stamped out. Yes. And also... It's not in my interest to change it anyway because these myths are useful. Well, so it's not like I have some dream to wake up millions of people to these myths. Correct. I mean, I, yeah, you're better off if they're not. Uh, We're all better off. How am I supposed to live if Australia doesn't exist and money has no value? It's... So these intersubjective myths can actually be changed, um, but they can only be, be done by very powerful institutions such as political parties, ideological movements and religious cults. Ideological movements, religious cults, revolution, yeah. Interestingly, these institutions are already based on an imagined order. Yes. So now we're starting to build imagined orders on the basis of other imagined orders. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah... Um, we're all nuts. 
Correct. I mean, the, the idea that money has value is based on a shared, societal, collusive delusion. And it makes it work, and it's very useful. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's two definitions of being mad. One is the inability to tell the difference between reality and fiction. Which I haven't been able to do up until I read this right. book. And the other is being out of step with everyone else around you. In other words, not sharing their shared delusions. Um, and they both make sense mm. because of this. Yeah, yeah. So that gets us to the end of the chapter, and I've just got unanswerable questions. I've got quite a few unanswerable questions for you today, so mm. you won't have to get 100%. I'll let you get, get by with, say, oh, five. Phew. I've got seven. I'm, I might let you get by with five or maybe six. We'll see how you go. Okay, that's the tough ones. All right, so my first question is this. So Indigenous Australians are fairly famous for having a relaxed attitude to life. Yeah. Is this because of their non-agricultural cultural background? So when we were speaking earlier, we were saying a lot of anxiety and stress that we have in our modern society really originated, or not originated, but became more prominent with the discovery of agriculture and and that future-based lifestyle. Yeah. While I was reading that, I was thinking, oh, that's interesting because, you know, some Indigenous Australians can be quite famous for not caring about material possessions and so forth. And yeah. so some of the problems that they face in their community, we try to solve with money and material items. Yeah. And it doesn't tend to work. No. And so this, like, well, I'm answering my question, I should yeah. let you answer. But in a sense, that opened my, opened my eyes a little bit as to why that might be the case. So sorry to... Uh, answer your question, but what's what's your answer to it? Well, I think first of all the answer is yes, um, for all the reasons we've been reading about here and for what you've been saying. But a couple of other things too. One is simply social population pressures. And um, the guy who set up Jim's mowing wrote a wonderful book in which he was looking at how people behave when there's stress and not stress when there's a lot of things. He actually based it on guinea pigs. But one of the things he found... Can you just explain what Jim's Mowing is to oh, for Jim, people that don't know what it right, is? Jim's Mowing is a franchise um, whereby you buy into the franchise and then you go around mowing using the brand name of Jim. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's very successful. It's extremely successful. Yeah, it's here now, in Australia, I don't yeah. know if it's international. No, it's not. But he's, Might he's, be New Zealand. He's now branched out into a whole bunch of other things as well. Yeah. But... He's a smart guy. He's a really smart guy. And what he said here was you've got two types of population. One is one where you can breed as much as you like and spread out as much as you like, but the predators come and kill you. So that's what controls population. But there's no pressure of restriction. The other is where you're all living in a tight little place with a limited food supply and everything else. And so you've got population control pressures. And there... The top dogs are really mean and nasty and they keep everybody else pegged down and everybody lives in a high-stress situation, which is what we've seen for so much of human civilization. He gives mm. a lot of examples. I think, yes, what we have here... They had the whole of Australia to play around with. They didn't have to meet any schedules. They didn't have to plant anything, weed anything. Yeah, it makes for a very relaxed set of people. Yeah. And, and some modern Australians or European Australians get frustrated with, with yes. Indigenous people for not buying into our myths. That's right. We but, were... I mean, their myths are just as valid as ours. Yes, correct. Um, 
So, yeah, we live in cities of millions of people clustered together. and we Yeah, come on, come on, come and make a million dollars so that you can go back to your community and then do exactly what you're doing yeah, now. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, fishing beside the river. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's all right. So um, I thought that was interesting anyway. Yeah. Uh, question number two. Did Hammurabi actually believe that the social hierarchy was... Now, I'm asking you to get into Hammurabi's head, which I expect you to do. Right, of course. Um, did Hammurabi believe that the social hierarchy was true? Or did he just pretend in order to achieve better social outcomes? Well, since he's setting this up, he's never going to admit that he doesn't believe it. I, can I just yeah. interrupt there? I don't think he set it up. I think he, was, I think he would have been maintaining what was sort of already in place. Look, I think it's probably an extension of what came before. Yeah. And that he was, probably codified it. Yeah, and probably he's got religious guys. There. But we have seen plenty of examples in history where... A pharaoh or emperor, or whatever, did try to change the ruling god or the yeah. etc. So, yeah. um, and it was difficult to do that. There was a guy was. that tried to do that in Egypt, and yes. it only lasted until the end of his reign. Absolutely. Um, so uh, <coughs> when when Rome adopted Christianity as the official state religion, it was it was a big deal trying to make that happen. Yeah. Um, so I think I think Hammurabi knew what he was doing, but he lived it totally that this was reality because that was the message he had to get across. I disagree with you. I think Hammurabi 100% bought into it in the same way that you and I buy into the equality of human beings. I just think it's easier for us to look at him and go, oh, nah, he can't possibly have believed that. But I don't think the myth would have worked if people didn't believe it. Well, the myth comes from somewhere. I mean, it may develop, but... When you look at what Constantine was doing with the Roman Empire and how the Nicene Creed came about and stuff like that, it's very clear that he was looking at, no, we can't put that in there, this isn't going to work for society. Yeah, we can conclude that, that's okay. Yeah, but you're talking about the minutiae and the details now of law codes. I'm talking about the, 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 the myth, the, the overall myth. Did Hammurabi believe it or not? I'm Did he believe that, that humans are unequal? I don't think he thought that a slave is worth two shekels and that God told him that. I think he thought about it and said, should it be three, should it be four, should it be two? Oh, this guy judged two. Well, I suppose we better be consistent. And he was thinking about it as a working code. Mm. Um, and yes, he probably did believe that I am here by God's appointment because it it feels good that way. Henry VIII certainly seemed to buy into that in a pretty real thing. You know? Oh, yeah. When Louis XIV. Yeah. When I talk, God listens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, it's a bit of both, you know. This, this yeah. is a... Well, I'm, I'm going to put you down as, as wrong for that. So okay. you've only got one more you're allowed to get wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ju judgment, yes. Now, did... <laughs> So similarly, did Thomas Jefferson believe in human rights? Uh, well, he was, of course, he kept slaves. Um, I think he very definitely believed in his own human rights. Uh, but he's a very interesting character. He was a very thoughtful, insightful character. And he was doing one of the really big tasks. I mean, I sometimes think, if I had to write a constitution, where would I start? Yeah. And now we've got 
frameworks and examples and it's taught in political classes and stuff like that, it's still a big problem. Yeah. Um, rule of law. I mean, he was basically creating rule of law again and he too was reaching for, so what is self-evident? What can I put out there that everybody's going to agree Well, with? it's interesting that it came... The American Revolution came very shortly after the Enlightenment, which is when all these principles were established. Yeah. So within 30 or 40 years, they're all self-evident and uh, never been thought of before. Yeah. <laughs> now, and the other thing too is he was trying to bring together a whole bunch of states who didn't even trust each other, but were all agreed that they trusted King George even less. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of compromise went into the drafting of this. Yeah. So if we take slaves out of it just for the sake of the discussion, did he believe in, in human rights? Yes or no? Um, I think he believed to some extent in the idea that this would be a good thing. So you don't think he was a true believer? It's the same with the United... The United Nations came up with this idea of, you know, human rights following... World War II, the, the idea that everyone should have access to education, health care, water, etc. Now, when they sat down and came up with that, they thought, yeah, people should have human rights, because if they haven't got human rights, you know, they've got nothing. But once you actually start to try and codify the details, what is the human right, you begin to see that this thing's got fuzzy edges. And... You know that you're conning yourself, but you also believe that it's worth doing. Yeah. So it sounds like you think he almost believed it. Yeah. Okay. You're almost talking yourself into believing it. All right. Well, I'm giving you a, a cross for that one as well, because right. I think you did believe it. Right. <laughs> and it's easier, it's so much easier for us to look at him and go, yeah, he believed it, and then look at Hammurabi and go, oh, no, no, he wouldn't have really believed it. Because we happen to share the same beliefs as Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, but we've been brought up to believe. Thomas That's right. Jefferson. He wasn't brought up to believe it. Yeah, Somebody good point. had to be the first Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. I'll give you half a mark. Oh. I mean, you know, I don't want you to take offence at my marking system here because it's completely arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> you, look like you're, you look like you're a bit put out. Hey, I, I completely understand that God appointed you to be the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Marduk came down to me last night in my sleep and said... Set this Sato guy straight. Now, next question. Do ruthless dictators who don't care about their people understand the nature of these myths better than the average person? So I'm thinking now about, say, Nietzsche with the, the great man view of history. Yeah. You know, are there, have there been these great men? Do they, you know, I, I use put great in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These great men that are power, you know, extremely powerful and they really know that it's all a bunch of bullshit. But, um, but um, you know, they're obviously not going to tell anyone. Um, that, I just think that's such an interesting question. I mean, you know, does Donald Trump, for example, know that, you know, all this stuff is just shared myths? I mean, is he, is he smart enough to know that? Um, you know, because he's certainly a guy who puts himself above the rules. Yeah. You know, rules are made for other people. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just interested in that question. So what, what's your answer? I'm going to steer away from the Donald Trump Fair question. Um, because I don't want anyone to think I'm likening Donald Trump to Hitler or Stalin. But I think Stalin would absolutely say yes. 
Yeah, he was a smart man. He was. I I suspect he might have known too. Thoroughly nasty, but you know, Stalin gratitude is a disease of dogs. You know, the idea of gratitude having value—it's just a shared myth that most people go with. I don't have to go with it. What I can't understand with guys like Stalin is, in one sense, he was trying to do what he thought was best for the, the motherland and he thought no. the communist government was the best and he obviously wanted to win no. the war against Germany and so forth. So on one, on one level, he, he did care about this concept called the Soviet Union yeah. or Russia. Yeah. But then on the other hand, he clearly didn't give a shit about any of the, you know, or almost none of the people. And I've, I've always struggled to reconcile those two things. Uh, look, we could make a whole different podcast on this. There was a question on core the other day. Why, why do so many people get stuck into Donald Trump? He only does stuff... Do you see as being for the best of America? Yeah. Now, I wasn't going there, but the thought that came to me was Stalin and Hitler never did anything they didn't see as being the best for Russia and China. What's that got to do? I actually think uh, Hitler was more pro-German than than Stalin was pro-Russia. Stalin was prepared to murder randoms. I agree. Whereas Hitler would pick out people that he didn't consider to be part of the German nationality and, and that, them. And that's the problem. When yeah. you're making Germany great again, that yeah. doesn't include yeah. the Jews who've lived there yeah. for a number of years. But I feel like Hitler sort of had a natural audience of, say, 90% of the population, whereas Stalin, you think, oh, God, you know, it's probably only about 50% that he was catering to, you know, really the city people. Yeah, I think Hitler's was more like 70%, but yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter. I'm making up yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, yes, this, one of the problems you have is they may see the myths, but, you know, make Germany great again. What is the myth of Germany? See, Hitler, I think Hitler bought into that myth of making Germany great. So that he, he obviously didn't, you know, I, I don't think he was a guy who did. And, and I think Stalin believed in communism. So I suppose we're answering the question. These guys did believe in myths. Maybe they didn't believe in the myth of human rights, though. Um, it, it depends, I think, on what you mean by believe as well. Because in one sense, they believe this is good for Russia. But they also understand that this, this is something I create for the good of Russia. Yeah. Um, so the problem with all myths is they have fuzzy edges. Um, and so you can believe in the core without believing in the fuzzy edges. And, you know, we see this with Christianity and, you know, Harari looks at some examples going down the track. It's, it's where your myths collide that you get the fuzzy edges that you have to try and live with and resolve. Yeah. I also suspect that Stalin had this idea of Russia that he was doing his best for, but he didn't seem to associate Russia with the people of Russia. They were like two separate entities. Correct. Yeah. And this, this is the strange thing, you know, make America great again. What America are we talking about here? And yeah. what do you mean by great? Well, this is, yeah, I mean, this is where the fuzziness helps because yeah. you can say a lot of things, you know, in context and they don't really mean anything. Exactly. And they're speaking to the, the people that want to hear what they want to hear and, and absolutely alienating the people that That's are hearing right. other things. So fuzziness helps is, is mm-hmm. a very good, good point. Oh, I'll give you a tip for that, uh, Hello, because um, I can see you getting upset with your score. <laughs> okay, number five. Um, 
Are the gr- oh, this might be similar to number four, actually. Are the great men of history those who understand that the shared myths we all believe are in fact myths? So it's, it's really the same question, but I, I started off thinking about ruthless dictators and now I'm talking about great men, uh, people that seem to transcend reality in a way. And I suppose you know, people like Napoleon and, and uh, Alexander the Great or what have you, do they get these things on a deeper level than, than what other people do or, or not? Well, I certainly think people like Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi probably do. Um, and there's some questions to Moses, whether Moses actually existed, but in a sense, yes, he very, you know, Moses absolutely set up a mythos. Um, so I think, yes, to some extent they do. And one of, because one of the things you've got is you have to understand how you set up a mythos. What makes it credible? And this gets right down to your, your Greek gods and, and this sort of stuff. Another topic for a whole podcast, yeah. um, which we should probably do sometime. Yep. Okay, no worries. Now, in these COVID-19 times, many people are rebelling against quarantine and lockdown and wearing face masks, etc. Are they confusing an objective reality with an intersubjective myth? I think at least some of them are. Um, we have these wonderful myths of freedom and privacy, etc. Now, these are very important. I'm not saying it's not worth oh, fighting sure. and dying for. Yep. But at the same time, COVID-19 is an objective reality. It yes, is. It's, it's, like, it's like gravity. That's right. It will make you sick if you don't... I believe what these people have done. They don't believe. They can't... Gravity, they all know gravity exists, so they don't argue no. about it. But you can't see COVID-19. Yeah. And so now they go, oh, that's a, that's a myth which is created by the liberal media or whatever it happens to be, yep. and then rebel against it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the problem here is basically confusion between an objective reality and a myth. Okay. Uh, two points I'll make on that to wrap up. One is... We've got so much into the cult of individualism and freedom of rights these days that many people think that everybody's opinion is equal and that opinions are facts. Now, you're not actually entitled to your own facts, you're entitled to your own opinion. I think you're absolutely right. They are confusing things like COVID-19, a fact, with opinions. How does it spread? How far apart do you have to stay? Things like that. And these are opinions. I have found in my own attempts at (coughs) clarifying things that what's a fact and what's an opinion are not easy to separate on a lot of things. And we'll see that when we get into economics. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there because we're just about to get to an hour and uh, that's probably long enough. So um, thanks for your time, Hardo. Good chat. And uh, I'll see you on the flip-flop. I look forward to that. We've obviously got a lot of podcasts to come.